0: Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with, and if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Okay. This is a story about love. But in our 21st century culture, love can mean many things, especially when we read a story like this one. We will not know what is happening here until we are clear about this word, love. This is not a sentimental story meant to bring tears to the eyes and a lump in our throat as we tie yellow ribbons on the front gate. It is not the feeling about someone who gives us personal pleasure. It is not the sheepy-eyed romantic love. This love does not draw circles and love only those who think, look, or believe as it does. It is not even the high and noble love of a human in giving his or her life for another. The fact is that human love, at its highest and best, has within it a fatal flaw. This is a story intended to reveal and open us up to the possibilities of God love. God love was always present in the spiritual darkness of mankind as a thin shaft of light until it blazed forth fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The God love in Christ is the greatest personal force in and beyond the universe, bringing rebirth and resurrection to mankind, restoring and recreating the human to the original purpose for which we were created. What is this love? The word in the Greek language of the New Testament is agape. Agape describes God's limitless, personal, relentless energy moving to fulfill his original purpose in creating mankind that we should be in his image and likeness. Agape describes ultimate relationship within God that will not rest until he brings us to participate in that relationship. God is agape. Agape is not an occasional trait, a mood he may or may not presently have. Agape is not something that God has at all, a possession to increase or decrease or be used up. Agape is who God is. And whatever is true of God, whatever he does, all is the expression of this God love. Agape is not the response to one whose beauty excites and overtakes him, but arising from who he is, It springs spontaneously from his heart. His love originates in who he is, not in the beauty of the beloved. God does not fall in love. He is love. For this reason, agape is the unconditional love, invading the darkness and ugliness of man's sin, to embrace and go to death, to bring even the enemy into his saving embrace. Agape is infinitely for us, standing with us against all the powers that would seek to separate us from him. Agape does not label us, but delights in every human as we are and what we shall be. Agape is like light, breaking up into many colors, like a diamond with many facets. It is revealed as forgiveness, releasing us from the guilt and power of sin. It is the limitless goodness, compassion, Kindness, tenderness, gentleness, patience, and faithfulness, to name but a few. Any definition of God love that does not ultimately focus on the person of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and ascension is not the agape love described in the scripture. The glory of God, God love, is clearly seen and imaged in the face of Jesus. Because you see, in Jesus, God became flesh. ...entered into our humanity and joined us in the ghetto of sin and death. He claimed that he was the final and ultimate revelation of the one true God... ...in his person and words and actions. The peasants were amazed at his words and stood astonished at his works. The temple fumed with rage and wanted to be rid of him as he exposed them... ...as representatives not of God but of the liar. Rome... The latest expression of the god of cruel power watched. Their spies were listening and waiting for any suggestion of insurrection in his words that would threaten their iron rule. And when his mission seemed to begin to have unstoppable traction, he did the one thing that shocked everyone, friend and enemy alike. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes the outcasts of all that was moral and decent and holy. And at that time, he gave us this parable. The parable that British author and pastor Malcolm Smith just set up so beautifully in his book, This Son of Mine, is commonly known as the story of the prodigal son. And here at Restore, we've decided to take the next three weeks to study this story in depth because it is the one that Jesus chose to tell when he wanted to tell us about the love God has for humanity. You see, the song we just sang said, I have heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. That's how that song starts, good, good father. Most of us have heard a thousand stories about what God is supposed to be like. But when Jesus, God in the flesh, chose to tell a story about what God is like, this is the story he chose to tell. This agape love, or God love, as Malcolm Smith calls it, is the most important thing in this story. In fact, I would argue it's the most important thing in the whole world. Back in August, we kicked off something we are calling our year in the greatest commandment. We borrowed that name of our year from a time when a group of religious leaders asked Jesus, what is of ultimate importance? They said, what's the most important thing? And many times when Jesus got a question like this, he would answer it with a question right back, or he would tell a story, or, or he would kind of skirt his way around it, but not this time. This time he answered it directly and head on. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, God in the flesh, this is what is most important. Loving God and loving others. So if Jesus said this is the most important thing, we figured that spending a year really trying to comprehend it and then put it into practice was a worthwhile endeavor. But to do that, we must first understand the truth presented clearly in the New Testament book of 1 John. It says God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. You see, without understanding and embracing the love of God, we simply cannot fulfill this great commandment to love God and love others. We only love because he first loved us. So that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We're calling this series, prodigals, as we look at this story of the prodigal son, because it's really not just about one character. There are three main characters in this story. You have the younger son, you have the older son, and then you have the father. And we're calling it prodigals because each of these characters is actually prodigal in their own way. If you're not familiar with that word, prodigal basically just means extravagant, reckless. Now, most of us are familiar, if you have some church background, with the younger son, right? He was prodigal in his pursuit of pleasure. He was reckless and extravagant and went after that with all he had. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But the older son, he was prodigal too. He was just prodigal in his morality, in his obedience. He felt like if he just did all of the right things some completely and fully that the father would owe him and the world would work out the way that he wanted it to work out. And then you have the father, who represents God in this story, who is prodigal, extravagant, relentless, and reckless in his pursuit and love of his kids. So this morning, we're going to begin with the younger brother, the story's namesake. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in to the story of the prodigal son. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this incredible story of the prodigal son. I pray that as we open it up, as we spend the next three weeks really looking at it, really trying to understand what it has to say, how it applies to our lives, God, and ultimately how it points to who you are, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you have a Bible or a phone, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you turn there with me, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have it, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. Luke is one of the very first books in the New Testament. If you aren't super familiar with the Bible, you're looking for it. Luke is one of the very first books of the New Testament. In fact, it's one of the four, what are called gospels. These are four kind of accounts or stories about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third one there, and then John. Our story this morning begins in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two Sons, right? So immediately we're introduced to the three characters in the story. There was a man and he had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, there is a lot happening in just this second verse here, verse 12, where he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided up his property between them. To us, it kind of seems like eh, that's kind of a rude request, right? Like to just go to your dad and say, Hey, I want my money, like I know something's coming to me, I, just, I want it now instead, and I want to go out and do my own thing. But, but we actually, in the West, we kind of have this affinity for that, right? We're like, hey, this, this kid's taking it up on his own, he's going out his own way, maybe he's grown up enough to do that, and he's like, Dad, I'm ready. I'm ready to leave the house, I'm ready to go my own way, do my own thing. But in the first century world, a request like this was like horrendous. I mean, it was so faux pas, so condescending, so downright, I mean, honestly, it was actually partially illegal, according to some of the Jewish law, that it just never would have been done. But the younger son brazenly goes to the father and he says, I want my share of the estate. So there are two sons. This is the younger son. So the way it worked in this history and culture is that the older son got two-thirds of everything. The younger son got one-third. But that was only after the father died. So the younger son, by going to the father and saying, I would like my share of the estate, he is in no uncertain terms telling his father, I wish that you were dead. But I'm not even going to wait until you're dead. Just give me the money that you owe to me and I'll be on my way. He doesn't want his dad, he just wants his dad's stuff. And as outrageous as this younger son's request is, the father's response is just as shocking because like I said, it would have been legal and even encouraged for the father to beat his son just for making a request like this. In fact, he could have gone to the village, which was just this big community, a lot of um, extended family and friends, and he would have asked them to come and be a part of beating his son in the public square and saying, look at how rude this son was to our family. We need to put him back on the right track. So let's teach him a lesson. He'll learn his lesson. He'll come back into the house. He won't ask anything like that ever again. That was what would have been normally done. That was what was encouraged in a situation like this. That's not what the father does. He simply divided his property between them. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, and this word for property is bios, and it means life, right? He divided his life between them. It's where we get... Biography, like life story, or biology, the study of life. The father divides up his life for the younger son. And lest you think Jesus is just being dramatic when he says the father divided up his life, let me explain how that worked. You see, the wealth of the father would have been primarily in real estate. That's why the younger son's request is give me my share of the estate, not give me my percent of the money. See, the real estate was most likely land that had been passed down from generation to generation in their family. So in order to monetize one third of his property, the dad would have had to sell land that had been in his family for generation after generation. So this younger son is not only telling his father he wishes that he was dead, he's asking him to tear his life apart in order to grant that request, and the Father does it. I mean, that one sentence we have in Luke 15, 12 doesn't even begin to capture it. It just says he comes with this request, and the Father does it. Now, another thing to point out in this context and culture, this wouldn't have been just a private matter. A lot of times we hear something like this, we're like, what a scandal, you know, inside of their home. But at least the community wouldn't have known or their friends and family wouldn't have known. But again, like what I said about villages in this time in Israel, they were like big extended families. They did everything together. They had festivals together and dinner parties together. They spent time together. Our Western concept of privacy did not exist in the first century Near East. This village would have been one big family who knew the intimate details of each other's lives. The younger son, turning his back on the father and the family, would have absolutely rocked the whole community. But the father does it anyway. Sells his land, monetizes that third that the younger son is owed, and he gives it to him. And without even a thank you, The younger son takes his money, packs his stuff, and leaves. Where does he go, verse 13? Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So that was kinda quick, right? Another quick verse with a lot of stuff in it. Jesus doesn't get gory with all the details. One sentence is all he needs to sum up the younger son's prodigal life. He wastes everything he has, in his extravagant pursuit of pleasure. Things are about to go from bad to worse. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So now a famine hits... And the younger son has squandered all of his wealth. He can't support himself. And he finds himself in this really difficult position. He's far from home. He's got no money. He can't eat. Now, the word that we have here as hired, he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, is really better translated. The literal translation is attached. He attached himself to this pig farmer. Have you ever been in a stoplight in your car and and someone comes up to clean your windshield? even though you haven't asked them to. You ever had that happen? You didn't hire them. You may not even have money to pay them when they do that. But they have attached themselves to cleaning your windshield with just the hope that you might give them something. That's what's happening here. The younger son has nothing. So I imagine him going to this pig farmer and saying, will you please hire me on? I'll I'll do anything. And the pig farmer's like, it's a famine, man. I have nothing for you. I have no food, I have no money, I have no job. Go away. And I bet he went from person to person. He finally finds this pig farmer and he just attaches himself. He just stays with him. He just just starts feeding the pigs. The pig farmer starts out walking, he's got the stuff to feed the pigs, and, and the younger son's like, no, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll just start feeding the pigs just with the hope that something good would happen. That is the precariousness of the situation that the younger son is in. He attaches himself to him and he won't leave. In fact, we can infer from the fact that the younger son wanted to eat the food that he was feeding to the pigs, that it probably wasn't a paying job at all. He couldn't even afford to buy pig feed. His money is gone. He can't eat because of the famine. He attaches himself, and this is another piece of this culture, to a Gentile. If you're not familiar with that term, a Gentile is just someone who is not Jewish, which would have been very shameful for a Jewish person to work for a Gentile. This isn't a well-to-do Gentile either. This is a Gentile pig farmer. And pig farmers in this time and place were essentially itinerant and homeless because they traveled around with their herds, doing everything that their herd needed, protecting them from animals and predators and feeding them and being with them. So attaching himself to a pig farmer meant attaching himself to a group of pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish people and pigs, they don't go well together, right? In fact, the Old Testament specifically prohibited Jewish people from eating pigs, touching them after they died, and just generally interacting with them. That is the state that the younger son finds himself in. And this job that he has pays so little, he can't even afford to eat the things that he's feeding the pigs, Now, it's obvious that the younger son is in a desperate situation, and I bet he's feeling scared and worried. But, y'all, I bet the loneliness that he feels is even worse. You see, when he arrived at the far country with pockets full of cash, I bet he was the life of the party. We find out later on that you know, prostitutes were a big part of being involved in his kind of wild living time, right? So you can just imagine him. He, he arrives in this country. He's got all of the money, his, his third of the inheritance from his well-to-do father, and he just starts paying for everything, for the drinks and the girls and everything, right? And this whole group of people surrounds him, and he thinks that he is loved. He thinks that people care about him, but the moment that the money is gone, so are they and he is left alone with nothing. It's a crushing realization that they didn't want him, they just wanted his money. And I don't know if at that point he made the connection back to what he did to his father, when he said essentially I wish you were dead, give me my money, I wanna go. He told his dad I want your stuff but I don't want you. Now the tables have turned, and he's felt that personally, intimately. We don't know if he makes that connection, but we do know that he realizes he has to make a change in his life. Verse 17 records it. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, this is a desperate plea from a desperate son. You see, there's a difference between servants and hired servants. Servants lived on the landowner's property. But hired servants lived in town and were even kind of a lower class of people. So the servants were kind of around the house, right? They were working. If you've seen like Downton Abbey, okay, that was the kind of situation, right? They lived on the property. They did the things. They were kind of like in a lot of cultures, the extended part of the family. Now, certainly lower class in the family, but an extended part. But the hired servant lived in town, kind of only came in when they needed something. And so he doesn't say, make me like one of your servants where I can even live in my old household. He just says, make me like one of your hired servants, one of the people in town, because at least then I will have food. The son believes he has brought so much shame on his father, he isn't even fit to live on the estate of the house he used to share. So he comes up with this plan. He starts to make his way back to his father's house. Now, I imagine him as he's walking back to his father's house, rehearsing that apology he wrote over and over and over again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired servants. Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me, please, like one of your hired servants. And as he walks and as he rehearses, he looks around and he begins to start to see familiar landscapes and buildings. He realizes that he's almost home. And I bet he is terrified. And as he comes up over a hill and his childhood home comes into view for the first time in a long time, he sees something that defies all logic and all expectation. Verse 20 records the scene. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This scene is incredible for so many reasons. First, his father saw him while he was still a long way off. Now, a wealthy landowner like his father would have been busy. He would have had a lot of things to attend to all the time throughout the day, daily affairs, but it seems as though his father devoted at least a portion of the day to standing out on the edge of his property looking at the road where his son left him, praying and waiting and hoping that he would come back. Because as soon as he makes his way over, while he was still a long way off, the father sees him. That's the first thing. Second thing, is that high class men, and really men at all, in the first century culture, did not run. Like ever, it was shameful to run. And this was especially true for high class men because they wore these huge flowing robes and lots of jewelry, and and these like heavy garments, and so in order to run, he would have had to pick all of it up, like a big skirt, and carry it, and spread, I mean it was like shameful. You didn't do that, it was embarrassing. But he doesn't care. He picks up all his heavy robes. I can just see him throwing his jewelry behind him, you know, and he picks it all up and he just takes off for his son, for his baby boy. And when he gets to his son, he throws his arms around him. He starts kissing the young man that only a short time before had told him I wish you were dead. I can imagine that younger son is a little taken aback, right? This is not at all what he was expecting when he came over the hill. But he remembers. He remembers the apology that he'd been rehearsing as he's been walking. And so he goes right into it. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but... The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He interrupts his son's apology. I think that's my favorite part of this whole story. Isn't that incredible? He is walking the whole way home, rehearsing this thing. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. But he can't even get to the part where he requests something. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad says, I've heard enough. Stop. He tells his servants, go start a party because my son is home. And when I say party, I mean huge party. This whole and calf thing was a big deal. It was something that was only used in the grandest of events and would have most likely meant that the entire village, that big surrounding community, would have been invited. Now, that was also a big deal, right? Because they all believed that the father had really screwed up by not beating his son and telling him to stay home. That was just what you did. And so the father says, no, 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 he's back, and I'm inviting all of you to participate in the fact that he's home. He puts the family ring on him. He puts the robe around him. These are all signs, right, that he is back fully, 100% into the family that he turned his back on. The younger brother, the younger son, decided to come home after dishonoring his father, squandering his wealth, shaming his entire family, and he expects to be met with judgment, but there is only grace. He anticipates punishment, but his father throws a party. He asks to be a hired servant, but his dad makes him a son. This is the beautiful picture Jesus paints of the agape love God has for us. We're gonna spend all of week three, the last week in this series, talking about the Father. Really focusing in on what we learn about God from the picture we have of the Father in the story. But for now, I wanna wrap up this morning focusing in on the younger son and a part of the story that we often overlook. Look back with me again at the beginning of verse 17. Remember, he's in the pigsty, he's working for the Gentile pig farmer, and he's just hoping to be able to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And then verse 17 says, when he came to his senses. As the younger son finds himself in the worst position of his life, as he jealously watches the pigs eat, Jesus says he comes to his senses. The the literal translation here is that he came to himself. It's as if someone went up to him as he was laying with all the pigs, starving, broke, and utterly alone and holds up a mirror to him. It says, look at you. Is this who you want to be? Is this how you want to live the rest of your life? And as he comes to himself, he, he embraces and understands that a lot of the choices that he made got him there. And yeah, he could have, shifted the blame, right, as he looks at his life. He didn't ask all of his friends to leave. If they were true friends, he could have said to himself, they would have stuck around. They would have helped me out when my money left. He could have said, I didn't cause this famine. I'm a capable worker. I just, I needed a job at the wrong time. This is not my fault. He doesn't make excuses for the person he sees in the mirror. He comes to himself, comes to his senses. He owns up to the choices that he has made he realizes that the things he's been chasing in life actually have led him down a path to destruction. He sees that what he once considered to be wise was actually foolish. And he knows that the only way forward is to turn around and head back home. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's men, hired servants, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired." Had this stunning realization about how his choices have led him here. The younger son is still so caught up in his own bad behavior that he has missed—he has missed the much bigger problem. The problem isn't his wild living. The problem is his broken relationship. The problem isn't that he chose to walk into a life of partying and prostitutes. It's that he chose to walk away from the love of the father. All that other stuff is just a symptom of the original problem. His bad behavior is just an outflowing of being disconnected from the father's love and relationship and he wrongly believes that his bad behavior now prevents him from being able to enter back into the father's love and relationship. He thinks that he has to clean everything up before he can go